My name is Amanda Basler, and the Death Investigation Training Academy was instrumental in helping me get the job that I needed in the field of death investigation. Three six one seven response report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Day. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in iTunes still dedicated to the men working the field of death investigation. And I am sorry I said men. I mean men and women. How in the world did that slip up? I could stop this and re-record it, but I'm not going to. You know that I mean the men and women. You can listen to 200 and some uh, episodes, and you know that I always say that. Uh, I think women do a wonderful job in this field, and I work with a lot of them, and and very proud that they're in the police work and MDI. So Anyway, I hope I've gotten myself out of enough hot water for slipping that up. So how are you doing? If you keep track of us, like like if you really keep track and download our show every single week and listen every single week, well, you're going to kind of know we've been gone a couple of weeks. And and um, I mean, I'll say I'm sorry, but uh, the issue really is that I've been traveling and and I've been to other states, and, and last week I was in Maine, and a fantastic time there in Maine. And, you know, it's just hard to to sometimes get episodes out uh, when I'm traveling, when I don't have some of them in the can waiting. And I like to try to stay, of course, as fresh as I can. But that's okay. I'm here today, and we have a brand new episode to bring you. A couple of quick announcements. If you are still wanting to take the MDI Online Academy this year, you've got one chance left. The Online Academy uh, is November 9th of 2019, and after that, it is gone for the 2018 or 2019 starts in 2020, be January. So if you're wanting to get it in on the 2019, you need to take it in November coming up. Of course, next week, as this comes out live, the next week we have our MDI on-site training here at our academy location with practicals, things like that. It'd be fun. We're already in the process of setting our training dates for 2020. And not only the ones local here, but the ones travel. And if you are interested in bringing the three-day medical legal death investigation class to your area, I can help you do that at very little to no cost to your agency. Uh, We just went to Maine last week, had a great group of people from across Maine. In fact, it was so well received that that, uh, we're going to probably uh, be planning one in Bangor, Maine in the spring. So we're trying to get that location and dates kind of solidified. So I say all that to say, if you have a conference, a coroner's conference, a homicide conference, if you just want to bring training to your agency so that your people get some free training and we can open it up to people around your area or your state, contact me. We can come and, and bring this class. It'll either be me or me and another instructor, and we can bring the medical legal death investigation class to you. So just reach out to me and let's get that on the calendar. Let's get that started to to work through so that we can get you trained. Any other questions or any, anything you have need help with, let us know. Uh, I got word the other day again that another one of our students was able to get a job in their particular area and they 
they credit the online academy for doing that because it gave them a leg up not only in education but also in terminology and how the actual job works. So I can help maybe guide you in some of that as well. can never promise you a job, but I certainly would love to talk to you about it and help you the best I can. All right, so today's episode, we have a returning guest. It's been about four or five years, and that, and that's what's crazy. It's been, it was 2014, I guess, uh, when this guy was last on the podcast, and that's just crazy that we've been at this this long. So Dan Willis, Captain Dan Willis, he's retired police captain, a uh, very, very good guy, great conversationalist. He was on the show about five years ago. He had written a book at that time called Bulletproof Spirit. And of course, that talks a lot about uh, the protecting and healing the, your mind and your heart, mental health type of stuff. It's not really, it's not woo-woo. It's just down-to-earth, plain, simple stuff. How do we go about our everyday life as a police officers, corner MDIs, firefighters, things like that? And how does it affect our family? What do we know about it? How did, how do we know if it affects us or not? Now, you say, well, you know, Darren, you've you've talked a lot about that on the show over the years. Yeah, I have. And I'm and over the next 10 years, I'll continue to talk about it. We don't do it all the time. But, you know, every couple of months, I want to have a guest on to talk about mental health. Because, like in this particular guest, it's a little different. We're, we're not necessarily talking about the how-tos and, and the woo-woos. We're just talking down to earth. Here's what it's like to be a cop. Here's what it's like to be an MDI. Here's what it was like 15, 20 years ago. Here's what it's like today. Uh, we talk a little bit about how the political uh, realm is changing in the police industry, things like that. We have a great conversation. And yes, there is a little bit there about mental health and how it affects our job. And of course, at the end, I will remind you that he, the Bulletproof Spirit that was written in 2014 has now an updated version with all new stuff. You know, five years is a long time when you're talking about uh, police work, politics, mental health, things like that. So there is a new version, and you can find that um, in the show notes. You can click on the link in the show notes, um, or find that on Amazon, whatever, if you're interested in checking out the, the new version. But even if you don't do that, just listening to what Captain Willis has to say and how he can bring some of that education and training to your area, uh, it is well worth it as well. So I'm not going to take any more time talking about that. Let's just jump right in to the conversation I had with Captain Willis, and you can find out for yourself just how much gold nuggets there are in this conversation. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, I'm back uh, live with you, and joining me as I pre-introduced is Captain Dan Willis. Dick, uh, Mr. Willis, how are you doing today? I, I I forgot whether or not you're retired or not, and I didn't introduce that correctly. Are you retired or are you still active? I am retired. I retired December of 2014 after 30 years. 30 years. So, so you're certainly no stranger when it comes to law enforcement and uh, EMS and things like that, the stress that, that we deal with. You know, uh, we were talking uh, pre-show about the last time you was on the Corner Talk podcast, and it's probably been about five years ago. And at that time, you had, had written a book, Bulletproof Spirit, and... Uh, you know, we we spent some time talking about that. And, and since then, of course, you've come out with another edition of that book. And you've had some time to uh, maybe even learn more about the topic at hand here. Um, you know, one of the statistics comes out is that, um, you know, 
only 3%, I think it is, uh, yeah, only 3% of police agencies have suicide and prevention awareness program. Is that still a, a pretty new uh, thing? Is that is that still common today, only 3%? It's not quite that low now. Um, we've, we've made some improvements, but it's still way, way low. For the number one cause of death being suicide, I mean, 100% of agencies should have an agency wellness program, a suicide prevention awareness program. But uh, the vast majority of them uh, certainly do not. So. Right. Right. Well, you know, one thing that I have talked to other guests and other people about, and it's kind of an idea that I think would work well. So I'll just shoot it to you and you tell me. A lot of departments can't afford to have um, a, a suicide prevention program in-house. You know, New York, L.A., Chicago, big departments, maybe they can afford it. But most departments are not nearly that large. And so... Uh, they can't afford it on their own. I have advocated a situation where multiple agencies go together or a regional system goes together and hires one or two counselors. And it, if you if you haven't, uh, they pay a certain amount in per officer. And if you hold an ID card to one of those departments, you can uh, talk to them either through video chat or live chat or go into the office. Totally, totally anonymous. And it's ran independently, and each department pays a little bit based upon each officer. To me, that would sound like something smaller departments could really then get involved in a program where they can't afford it by themselves. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a great concept. Regionalization, yeah, that, that's just the way to go, to consolidate resources and everything. And, and as you said, especially for smaller agencies, but be able to pool the resources together. I mean, most agencies have less than 10 cups yeah. throughout the country. Yeah. But uh, within your region... And you you pull those resources together. You can certainly uh, have on, on contract one trauma expert um, that's available to to uh, within the region to those people. And, and uh, every agency can have a peer support team, or right. at least a peer support team within the region as well. Uh, but all of those are components of uh, uh, suicide prevention. The more that we enable uh, uh, these resources to be available to our people, they'll use them. The more they use them, the more lives are going to be saved. So let's talk a little bit about peer support. Is, how much training goes into to a peer support system, and how can that work for the average department? What does that look like? I don't know that I actually know what that would look like. Well, uh, your typical peer support team is made up of colleagues, fellow officers, dispatchers, uh, civilian employees, people from all ranks throughout the agency, people who uniquely understand our job uh, like no one else in the world does. Um, and who are willing to offer themselves to help, to support, to listen, to, to care for their fellow colleague. Um, because studies have shown we are far more likely to go to a peer than we are to a therapist. Um, but uh, there are many agencies even today that do not have a peer support team. The book has a whole chapter on how to create and maintain a, a, a good, effective, confidential, and used peer support team that, that can be trusted and effective. I don't know how an agency can uh, be healthy. An organization can be well and provide the most professional ethical service if they don't have a peer support team. And it's basically a colleague. Uh, you don't need a whole lot of training. A lot of training, what we did at my agency was we trained ourselves. We would meet periodically, at least quarterly. And I would assign a peer support officer to come to the next training and provide 15, 20 minutes of training. It can be on any topic they want to something that they, they're interested in, they study, they research it, they bring that information in, they give it to the group, and then the next course, somebody else had to provide the training. And they just rotated that way. So a lot of the training can be uh, amongst yourself, but there's also 
organizations that provide um, peer support type of training. It's uh, basically how to listen right? without judgment. Um, we're not therapists, right? We're not training our peers to be therapists, to be professional clinicians. It's how to be a compassionate colleague that cares, that wants to make a difference within their agency and within their, their brothers and sisters that they serve with, who's, who, who their own life depends on their brothers and sisters' health and well-being. So it's right. uh, the group can do a lot of the training in amongst themselves. And also there are corporations like Walmart, uh, Target, Home Depot that have community grants. Uh, I, I um, got the Walmart grant my last three years working, and you can ask for anywhere from two hundred fifty dollars to $5,000 a year. And, and we would typically get, get $1,200 to $1,500 when we purchase books for our wellness library wow. um, and some peer support officers to some training or have a guest. A speaker, an expert come in to the department. And it, and uh, these community grants are very simple to apply for. Uh, for Walmart, you just go to Walmart Foundation and they'll say apply online and you fill it out. It takes about 20 minutes. And, and uh, they love to give money, especially to cops. Nice. Because everyone knows that the uh, safety of every community depends upon the health and wellness of the officers serving it. And if the officers are suffering, suffering, the community is going to suffer significantly as well right yeah that's right but one of the things that i would wonder about a peer support system is what has what has limited officers from coming forward now is going to their command staff now i know peer support isn't necessarily command staff but you know you go in you was a captain of course you looked at things a little differently because obviously you did but it still if you had somebody come into your uh into your office and say uh, captain i have a problem and you know i thought more than once to, uh, you know i've said i sat around last night i was crying i had my gun in my mouth and i just almost ended it and i need to talk okay so as command staff you're gonna have to think do i take this guy off the road i take his weapon i have to set him down for a while but then does he go back so then the whole fear as you know of telling command staff is getting fired or taken off the road and they take your gun away so how can Telling up here, you have to be careful who you share that with, right? Because if because that that peer tells the wrong person, same problem can occur. So you have to really make sure that your peer support people are really vetted to be confidential. You have to not only vet them because uh, you just don't want anyone on the peer support team. Right. They, they have to be people that the whole agency looks up to, respects, and trusts. People who have been through a lot of experiences themselves. Uh, but you also have to have uh, really delineated uh, policies and procedures outlining exactly what peer support does, their purpose, their mission, what they can do, what they can't do. Um, and it has to be 100% confidential. If that gets violated once, that's the end of the peer support team, probably forever. Right. You have to have discipline built into that and, and everything. You just can't say, hey, you know, these people are peer support, go to them if you have a problem. It's got to be set up, it's got to be organized. You got to have those uh, standards and policies and procedures to make sure that, that it's the most effective. But to answer your question, Darren, about uh, coming into someone, if someone came into me talking about that or, or having suicidal thoughts, what we really need to do is, is uh, look at something like that as an injury, just as if the officer broke his arm trying to make an arrest, right? And if someone's got a broken arm, they're not going to be out in the street working right. as a cop. You need to heal and get well. And then you come back and you're fine. 
Well, it's a similar thing if you have an internal injury. If you've been injured by the uh, the uh, repeated daily traumas that we deal with day in and day out, it, it is just an injury. And you can heal, you can recover completely from an interior invisible wound from the traumas that can injure our brains. And uh, if, if an officer happened to have done something that you have to discipline, that's one track. You have to address behavior. But the other track is, okay, while we're doing that, how can we help you? Here, here's the resources. Here, here are trauma experts that we uh, allow you to go to for free or for limited cost. Uh, here are peer support resources. Uh, and and we, we deal on two separate tracks. We have to deal with the behavior, but also how can we prevent that behavior from getting worse? How can we help support and, and take care of this person just like we would if they broke their arm? We do a great job when officers get hurt physically. And uh, we need to really improve how we take care of them when the traumas of the work is uh, making them suffer as well. Right. I agree with you on, on that. And one of the things, too, to keep in mind is we have a shortage of police officers in the, the, the whole system, right, for multiple reasons. Uh, and so it's important to save good officers. So if you have a good officer that, that has sufferings from some of these mental illness issues, it's worth trying to save them. As you said, you wouldn't necessarily fire them if they broke their arm. So why would you fire them if they're having some mental situations where you can help get, get them help? You lose a good officer, they're hard to replace because Absolutely. people just are not applying today as they were. And then those that are applying aren't as good. Now, there's other officers sometimes, you know, it's, we have to move, move them out. But an officer been around 10, 15 years, he's going to be the one suffering mental illness or, or some type of PTSD or compassion fatigue issue after 10, 15 years. But if you've invested 15 years in an officer, you shouldn't be really quick to want to get rid of him because that's a lot of experience that you can't gain from a recruit. Absolutely. And we actually have a great story that happened with, with my agency at La Mesa PD. We had an officer that fatally shot somebody. This guy pointed a shotgun at a whole squad. The whole squad fired and killed this guy. Well, uh, Tim was the first one to the body. He got blood all over him and, and, uh, there was all kinds of issues that happened with that scene and trying to take care of that and looking for that, that uh, deceased suspect's children who he was chasing with a shotgun trying to kill and, and wondering if you're going to find kids blown up and everything else. Well, he, he uh, suffered uh, really greatly from that experience, and he, he tended to keep it within himself, um, but he was getting more and more depressed, could not sleep, anxiety disorders, just all kinds of issues that are perfectly normal when you experience that kind of a trauma. There's nothing wrong with him at all. Um, his brain was just injured from that. His wife left him during that. She got tired of him uh, drinking and having the issues and being depressed all the time and getting more and more distant, disinterested in the marriage, disengaged with life. And uh, he became very suicidal. And he actually, he came home one day and discovered his wife moved out. She was, she was gone. And he uh, fell on his, as he tells a story, his, his story is highlighted in Bulletproof Spirit. He fell on his knees crying, thinking about reaching for his gun and ending his life. But uh, thank God he called a peer support officer. We have been checking in with him and, and the other officers involved in the shooting ever since the shooting uh, consistently. Hey, what can we do for you? How are you doing? Do you need anything? So it was natural for him to call this peer support person. They came over within 20 minutes. They uh, spent the night with him. They helped him through that, that uh, most, most difficult, horrible night. And uh, he eventually went to the West Coast uh, Trauma Retreat Center 
It's a six-day and night intensive treatment center for PTSD and addictions and other issues and problems solely for first responders. And he came back after that, and, and he has recovered. He, he's been promoted to sergeant. He's one of our main people in our peer support team. And not very long ago, I got an email from him where he shared, hey, Captain Willis, I just want to let you know, I forgot how good life could be. I wanted to tell you that. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I am glad you framed it in that way in that, uh, you know, going back to the broken arm thing. With the story you just told, that that's uh, that kind of brings that home. An arm will heal. You can go back to work and be a fine officer. So if you have a mental issue, a mental health issue, then you can. But but mental health seems to be the big taboo. Nobody wants to nobody wants to talk about having a mental health issue. But again, whether it be one incident like like that uh, situation or multiple incidents over a lifetime or a career, it all adds up and and builds up. What are, what are some of the warning signs? And this isn't just for police officers, but. You know, coroners, uh, death, the medical legal death investigators that see death on a daily basis. I mean, they live, uh, you know, coroner investigators, ME investigators, and police officers, but they live things of nightmares. And so a police officer might have, you know, they might respond to four or five deaths a month, maybe a hospice or whatever, un, un, uh, you know, an unattended death or something. But maybe the way their shifts fall, they don't fall on all of them. But a coroner or a medical examiner investigator sees every one of the death. And so they see all the horrible stuff. So it is, isn't just for police. But what are some of the things that an officer can look into themselves or someone else can look at them and say, yeah, here's some warning signs we need to start getting some help for or pay attention to maybe? Uh, There's several, Darren. One of them is becoming more and more isolated where you, you just aren't involved with life like you used to. Uh, more and more disinterested, uh, disengaged with your family, with uh, friends outside of work, with activities, with things that really you used to enjoy, your hobbies, your interests. You just kind of shut it down and become more and more isolated, uh, becoming more and more uncaring, you, you, uh, jaded, calloused. You, know, you, you just don't care about things like you used to. That is not a healthy place to be. And a lot of times our actions tell our loved ones or our spouse that they just don't matter like they used to. And, and that's not true, but as we become more and more distant and shut down and, and we don't communicate, my ex-wife would say that I talked in one-word sentences, which I, I guess was true. It was not true when I met her, right? And, and we contend- our heart suffocates from what we experience and we just shut down, uh, not caring, uh, drinking more and more, drinking as a need, as a perceived need. I need to to relax. I need to so I can at least get one or two hours of sleep. I need to to forget. Um Having a startled response or a hair trigger, uh, less and less resiliency, more and more irritable and angry, just angry all the time, just flying off the handle over stupid stuff that never used to bother you before. Uh, All kinds of uh, anxiety disorders to where uh, panic attacks, where all of a sudden you just find yourself you can't breathe or emotions you've never had before. Um, A friend of mine who got involved in a 13-minute gunfight he says he'll just be driving down the street and he'll start crying. I don't know why. I don't know what triggered it. Uh, seeing things that aren't real. Uh, one officer shared with me, he would see after a fatal killing, he'd see his hands covered in blood constantly for months. And he said, I could even feel the stickiness of it. Wow. And I washed my hands over and over and over again. And I, I, I couldn't make it go away. I mean, just you become someone where you're old normal 
is a distant past. Um, and you feel things, you think things you know, that you never thought of before. And like I said earlier, it, it, it's terrifying. And you think you're, if it really develops, it, you think you're losing your mind. And the last thing we tend to want to do is tell a spouse. We don't want them to think we're going nuts. Um, and we tend to just suffer alone. And that's what kills more people in our profession than anything else, is suffering in silence. You can't heal yourself. Trauma is way too powerful to heal it on your own. But you can get well if you uh, seek it and get help. Right. Let me back up to what you said was sometimes we can't tell our spouse, right, suffering mental illness. But sometimes we don't recognize it in ourselves, right? So, you know, all this list that you just gave us, uh, I agree with every single one of them. I agree. And so sometimes, though, we get down the road to the point that we don't see we have changed. Your your ex-wife stated that you went to one-word sentences. At the time, maybe she said that. You might have recognized part of it, but you probably didn't recognize it as a whole. I'm just guessing here. But you probably didn't recognize it as a whole. So... I think it's also good for officers to find somebody they trust, a spouse, a fam, another family member, a friend at work, and ask them, hey, over the last couple of years, have you seen a change in me? If so, what's been changing? Uh, is that a healthy response? Is that something that would be beneficial? Because uh, now if you ask that question, you better be willing to accept the answer, right? But right. But exactly. but but I think that's something a, an officer or, or an investigator might think about doing. Somebody close to them spends enough time with them to know have I changed? And if so, how? Uh, absolutely. That, that's absolutely essential, Darren. I, I like to say that we always remember the anniversary data when we got hired. I mean, I always did. And we should use that as just a reminder once a year. I mean, we should be doing this more than once a year, but that can help us remember, oh, it's my work anniversary. I need to check in and, and kind of see what's going on with my life. And uh, just really evaluate what's going Do you still love work? Do you have anything that you enjoy? look forward to going to work? Are you becoming more isolated? Are you shutting down? Uh, are you becoming more and more negative, more bitter? And you just ask yourself these questions. And then what you brought out, the most important thing to do, I never had this conversation with my ex-wife. Um, so, I mean, she's an ex-wife for a reason. We're divorced. So I highly recommend that every one of your listeners have this where, again, on the anniversary date of your work, to remind you, sit them down and say something like this. I, I know it must be really hard to be married to me. You didn't just marry me. You married the La Mesa Police Department. With all the issues and problems and trauma that come with that. What do you need from me so I can help you get through my career? And listen to them. I mean, they'll have all kinds of things. Because guaranteed, you probably never had that conversation with them. And that opens the door for you to tell them what you need from them. And you come together as a, a emotional survival partners. to get through this real unique marriage of, of what we do. And then also you need to tell them, I need to know if you notice me being different, if me changing, me not being myself, you have to tell me that's, that's uh, essential for my own health and well-being and survival and the survival of our marriage. And then it's up to the officer, the ME and ME investigator to uh, have a uh, atmosphere where your friend, your spouse, your life partner feels comfortable coming up to you and saying, now, what's wrong with you? You haven't been yourself lately. If they don't feel comfortable saying that because of how we've reacted in the past, you will never get that great feedback that you need. We are the last to know what's going on. And uh, if the people closest to us do not feel comfortable telling us, 
we're never going to be able to change and get better. Absolutely. And somebody may be listening now and they think, well, I I don't care if I keep my job or not. I hate my job anyway, so it doesn't matter. But what I'm getting ready to say is if you don't do what you just explained, eventually you're going to wash out of it. You're either going to quit, you're going to get fired, something's going to happen, and you're going to be out of the career. And you may be saying, I I really don't care. I, I hate my job. Okay, But you didn't hate your job when you got into it. So why do you hate your job now? What has changed? You know, is it a current chief? You stick it out. You're probably going to last longer than him anyway. But but if it's not something like that, then why do you hate your job? All the things that you just said. And if you got into this career for a reason, what is that reason? If that reason still exists deep down inside, then maybe the reason you hate your job are all of these things. And so when you do go ask, go ask with the whole attitude of, I want to know. Don't be angry. I won't be angry. I want to know because if you want to save your job and go back to loving it for the reason you went into it at the beginning, this is imperative because, again, you don't see it most of the time. And that's not all the time. I think all of us have have times in our life and our careers where we're like, we recognize a change. I've recognized a change in me over the last few years. Um, I have done some things to help that. I've think I'm probably not doing enough. I'm just being transparent here um, because I think there are some things in my career over, over time. And the more I have talked about it to people like you and others, and, and I even teach a little bit on it, basically just a 50,000 foot view of we need to learn more. I'm starting to realize, oh, wait, I'm holding a mirror up to me. I've got things in my life that maybe, maybe I'm seeing some things that I thought I was all okay and cool. You know, maybe it's not all okay. I deal my job just fine. But after 33 years of this, I I, I told somebody on a class this last week um, or, or yes, yesterday I spoke at a first responder thing. And I told them, I said, imagine any horror movie you've ever seen. The stuff of horror movies over the last 33 years, I bet I've seen every one of them at least twice. I mean, horror movie stuff. Well, that's got to affect us. And I don't think people realize how it affects, well, you know, I can handle it. I Sure, you can handle it. You do a good job at it. I'm glad you can handle it. But what does that do to us mentally? Because we're not really supposed to, you know, when you have a baby cut up and chopped up in pieces, thrown in three different dumpsters, that's not normal. You can't normalize that, right? So you have to understand that that's going to affect your mental health. So I don't think people, us, take it serious enough sometimes. And I think we bluff our own way through it. Would, would you agree with that? Or am I just giving myself counseling here? No, I think you're uh, absolutely right. And I think everyone uh, listening can relate to that. But uh, let, let me just uh, say, Darren, that no one is invincible from this work. Right? We, we are human beings. We fear, we suffer, we bleed. just like everybody else. And the more that we pretend we don't, more and more vulnerable you become to suffer from the effects of trauma. And the one lesson, the, the one thing I learned more than anything else in 30 years of law enforcement is that whatever your job is in the first responder profession, it truly is a vocation of the heart, right? Yeah. We protect and we give life to people, right? And if you're not putting your heart in your work, being driven to make a difference in your agency, to make them better, more professional, to make a difference with your colleagues, to make a difference within the community, to make a difference in the people we interact with and serve, who depend upon us, who need us. 
We're not driven by our heart to make a difference every day with every call for service. The job is going to eat us alive. And it is the number one thing that counteracts that, that maintains our motivation, our inspiration to do this work, our job interest, to prevent our heart from suffocating, is be driven to make a difference, whether it's a kid that crashed on a bike or a homicide scene. Don't be a jaded, callous person that just doesn't care. Find a way to be compassionate, to be caring, to uh, be merciful, to to make a difference somehow and in some way. And that will help keep you well throughout your whole career. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's talk for just a second about chaplains. And I know chaplains can also be a part of the peer support group. Um, and, And I know... Again, not every department has a chaplain. Uh, there are some small departments around the country where a local minister of whatever faith, you know, is the chaplain for that fire department or that police department and, and things like that. But a chaplaincy program is a, is an important program to have. Uh, if someone's listening right now that doesn't have a chaplain program or maybe their department don't, someone else does, tell us the importance of a chaplaincy. Uh, you know, the, the listener out there saying, look, I have no organized religion or, you know, I'm I'm a this religion or I'm a I'm a Buddhist, right? So your your Lutheran chaplain can't do anything for me. Well, I don't agree to that. So so explain to all of our listeners what a chaplain is and how a chaplain chaplain can play an important role where religion really doesn't have a, a place. I mean, does it doesn't matter as much? I'm saying. Well, there are, I think chaplains are an absolutely essential component to the uh, health of any organization, and, and they are a critical part of. The- of Pierce 14. The reason why chaplains are so important, and first of all, how they work is uh, not every clergy can be a good chaplain. In fact, I think very few can because you have to be able to fit in to be accepted within the culture of the organization and be known that you're not there peddling your particular doctrine or religious belief. You are there for any person with any issue or any problem. It doesn't have to be spiritual or religious. The, the great thing about chaplains is when you think about them, they're clergy in a regular job. And what do they do? All day long, clergy deal with people's problems, yep. with marriage problems, with uh, people suffering grief and loss and tragedy. So they have a, a world of experience. So just on that level, they're a, a great, great resource. But to have, if, if one of our employees uh, wants and needs that spiritual support, or maybe wants to bring up the topic of religion as it pertains to their service, to have an expert there that's able to do that, um, they're worth their weight in gold. And, and, and chaplains, first of all, they're, they're protected by law also. The law sees them the same as, as a therapist. So a chief can never call in a chaplain and say, hey, did you talk to uh, my shooter officer the other night? If he talked about a shooting, I'm ordering you to tell me what he said. Yeah. You can't do that. that that's against the law. Right. So they're protected. They have a world of experience and they offer that to spiritual support. Not that they don't give it and provide it on their own. They don't. They're forbidden from that. But they'll talk about it if you bring it up. Right. So they're there for, for the for whatever needs are of the employee. And then when you really think about it, there is great spirituality in what we do in yes. protecting life and in, in dealing with evil. You know, and being being the good, you know, fight of good against evil, and protecting and and and, uh, and enforcing the laws and, and the, protecting the sacred rights of our nation and our way of life. And there's great spirituality in that, and, and part of our service needs to have those spiritual components of compassion yes. and of mercy and wanting to be uh, selfless 
and sacrifice a part of yourself and be helpful, well, that's all vital to your health and survival. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I have found over the years that even if a chaplain isn't of my denomination or, or my particular faith, you know, I'm, I consider myself Christian, and so there's a lot of denominations in Christians. I mean, a, a Lutheran is different than a Baptist is different than uh, a Pentecostal. I mean, but they're they're all Christian based, right? So that would be also di- very much different in some ways, and not completely um, like Islam. Islam is different than Christianity. There's a lot of things different, but they still believe there's a God. They still believe in spirituality. I, I don't know enough about Buddhism and Hinduism and things like that to to speak on that. So I, I can't do that. Uh, but Jews, Jewish, um, you know, again, uh, they believe a lot of the same Bible Christians do. There's just only one major issue is, and that's the, you know, Jesus Christ. Some, you know, the Christianity believe one thing, Jews believe another. But, but the point is there's all enough similarities that like you said, we are spiritual based. They, you know, we are all spiritual based. And again, unless you bring it up to that ca- uh, chaplain, they're not there to 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 turn you Lutheran, right? They're just there to be a sounding board and to help you with the training that they've had in chaplaincy. However, if you are of a Christian faith, if you are Pentecostal, a Lutheran pastor can pray for you with you and for you just like a Pentecostal pastor can. But you have that component if you ask. But the good chaplain is there to help you have a sounding board totally outside of your department um, and can give you some good guidance, even if it's not necessarily doctrinal, it's spiritual. And and at least sometimes all we need is somebody to talk to that will just listen to us. Even if they don't have a lot of great advice, they just listen. And chaplains are good at that. They're, they're, they're fantastic at that. They are. My, my officers used to get in fights about who uh, would have our chaplain for a ride along because they saw it as 12 hours of free marital counseling. <laughs> nice. I like that. If they're, they're uh, experts in problems. Yes. And, and uh, if you want to go into that spiritual support, then they add that component as sure. well. Sure. Re- sure. Yeah. And, and a lot of the chaplains go to not not all some smaller departments areas. It's just a local pastor of a church and 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 whatever. But a lot of them go to a chaplaincy training program. Some denominations actually have a chaplaincy program, um, and so it, it 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 would be nice if your chaplain of your police department, fire department, whatever, was a trained chaplain, and if possible, and maybe your department could go together and pay his way and let him go get some training. But the training component, though, is they have everything else about the pastoral side, but the chaplaincy helps them to understand how to be a chaplain, not a counselor, but in a way, they're kind of a counselor, not in the same legal sense, but helps them to learn. Because sometimes a pastor you know, goes to theological seminary and, and they got a four-year degree and then they go some other stuff and they got all the stuff. Sometimes the pastor of the church um, was just a long-time deacon and got organized as the pastor, and he's been a pastor there 10 years, but he's never been to formal training. Not taken away from him, uh, as far as the pastor of the church, he's probably fantastic, but maybe that two-week chaplaincy course might be just the thing he would need to understand how to be a chaplain. And I think that you find someone like that or help pay his way, that would be a huge resource for a department and and having officers to be able to talk to somebody. Absolutely. And as uh, you brought up earlier, it can also be regionalized where yes. several agencies get together within a region and, and have a chaplain come. Or maybe a bigger agency in your region has one and you ask them, hey, can you come a couple of days a week and, 
and hang out at the station, do a couple ride longs. And there, there's ways to make it happen. And uh, Bulletproof Spirit, my book, uh, has a whole chapter on the effective use of chaplains and, and how to find a good, effective chaplain, how to test for them, how to set up a, a, an effective chaplain program, and why they're so uh, effective for the health of the organization and of our officers. Absolutely. And one thing you mentioned is coming to the department. A chaplain by name does no good if the guys don't know him or her. So, so hanging around the department doing some ride-alongs, being at the Christmas party, you know, being involved in the life of the department. Because you know what? It takes a while to get to know a guy. And you're not just going to go spill your heart out to some guy just because he has a title as chaplain. Once you get to know him, ride-alongs, things in the, always around the office a couple days a week or something like that, 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 means, that means a lot more. So whoever you choose as chaplain, if you don't have one, make sure they understand they need to be around some. They need to be able to come out and ride and do things and be involved. And, and then that, that, that person will be your, your, your best chaplain. So I'm going to transition here just a little bit. Um, again, five years ago, you wrote a book called Bulletproof Spirit. And now uh, you've wrote a revised edition. And so, of course, they're great books, you know, but you've got some things different in here a little bit. But tell us what's the difference between the first one and the second one. And why did you find the need to write the, you know, the revised edition of Bulletproof Spirit? And you took your face off the cover. Well, uh, there's two new chapters in the revised edition. Uh, as I go around the country, I have a, a four-hour training class that's based on the information and the wellness strategies in the book. I've been to 30 states in Canada. Um, providing this training, and I've learned a lot uh, hearing people's uh, struggles and their personal stories and what has helped them in the whole process of healing and uh, things I, I didn't know or, or uh, was aware of back when I wrote the first book. So one of the new chapters in the revised edition highlights uh, the person I, I mentioned who was involved in a 13-minute gunfight, Mike Spears, and uh, the, the PTSD that he suffered from, how that changed him so uh, severely, but uh, far more importantly, he shares the whole process of healing. Things that he wished he knew beforehand that would have significantly helped advance his uh, complete recovery and uh, road to, to wholeness. So uh, that's a fascinating chapter of uh, a personal journey. And when you read that, you, you will see yourself on those pages as he describes how, how that has affected him. Because we all... You don't have to be in a shooting to suffer PTSD. Most right. people who have it were never in a shooting right. or anything horrific. But the daily traumas can, they're, they're poisonous, they're toxic, and they're cumulative. And they can build up to the point uh, over time as if you were in a horrific, terrible situation. So uh, he really shares uh, just some great insights in the whole process of healing. And then uh, another chapter I've uh, included just talks about what we were just sharing there uh, briefly about the, the spirituality of public service, of serving with a purpose, being driven by your heart to make a difference, of being compassionate and caring and merciful, um, selfless, uh, all, all those spiritual qualities that make you a good first responder, make you effective, that make you be able to um, provide justice and peace to victims and, and, and to make a great difference. So there's a lot of cops that are just cops in name. And we, and we have so much opportunity to do a tremendous amount of good throughout our work, professional lives, no matter what your job is in the criminal justice system as an ME, ME investigator, a tremendous amount of opportunities to do good. And uh, the more you're aware of that and thinking of that and uh, having that purpose every day with every call, 
of what good can I do here? How can I help? How can I make a difference? That That is spirituality, and that is what's going to help us survive and thrive throughout our career. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, so Bulletproof Spirit, a great book. Where can someone find it? I'm sure Amazon has it. Um, do you have a website as well? or Amazon does have it. I do have a website, firstresponderwellness.com. And that has links to purchase the book. It also has flyers and information about the training class. And uh, there's contact information for you to contact me um, for any reason. And um, first spelled out, F-I-R-S-T, firstresponderwellness.com. Okay. And, of course, you know, if you your listener goes to the to the website or if you're on your phone, just click on the description on the on your phone and it's going to bring up the show notes. All of those links will be in your show notes. So whatever device you're listening on or even the computer, you'll be able to, to, to find those links and go straight there and not only find the website, but then how to get in contact uh, with Captain Wells as well. If, if you want to uh, maybe talk to him more or have him uh, come to your department or, or how, how he can help you, things like that. Um, but, but, Mr. Willis, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Again, just like last time, you, you brought a lot of value. Uh, love the book. Love what you're doing. And I, I'm glad that you're taking the lead on this across the country and really making a difference, I think, in, in, in first responders' lives, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Darren. It was certainly my pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Yep. Have a great day. All right. You too. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.